0: United Methodist Podcast, Episode 003, with Indiana Area Bishop Michael Koiner.
1: When the church is comfortable, we don't do well. But when we're under duress, even under persecution, Christians seem to step up.
2: Hi, this is Roger Ross, Senior Pastor of First United Methodist Church in Springfield, Illinois, and author of Meet the Good People. Wesley's Seven Ways to Share Faith. You are listening to the United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, doing all the good we can. Welcome to the United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that a strong connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist Podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and leaders making a difference in the United Methodist Church. And now, here's Brad.
0: Hello, good people, and welcome to episode 003 of the United Methodist Podcast, where our mission is to strengthen the connection in the united methodist church through conversation and commentary for the purpose of making disciples of jesus christ for the transformation of the world i'm dr brad miller thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast today is a special day we have a conversation with bishop michael j quiner of the indiana area of the united methodist church bishop quiner has served in the episcopacy for over 20 years and is retiring in 2016. In his time as bishop, he has served the United Methodist Church in just about every capacity and oversaw the challenge of bringing two distinct annual conferences together to form one new annual conference. Bishop Mike had a great conversation that ranged across many topics, but particularly about the joys and challenges of serving as a bishop and what he sees as signs of hope in the United Methodist Church. Following that, we'll have our Methodist moment with Wesleyan scholar, Dr. Andy Kinsey.
2: The United Methodist
0: Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Today's episode of the United Methodist Podcast is brought to you and supports... Mission Guatemala. Mission Guatemala is an advanced special mission of the United Methodist Church under the direction of Reverend Tom Heaton. It serves a profoundly poor area in rural Guatemala with feeding centers, preschools, and medical dental services. To find out more about mission trips and service opportunities, go to missionguatemala.com. Strengthening the connection. Today's episode is also brought to you by the new book, Meet the Good People: Wesley's 7 Ways to Share Faith. It's by by Roger Ross and it's published by Having It Press. Meet the Good People is a powerful response to people who are spiritual but not religious. You can win a free hard copy of Meet the Good People and have it personally inscribed by the author by going to UnitedMethodistPodcast.com
2: making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It
0: really was a privilege for me to have a conversation with Bishop Mike Coiner. I say that because Bishop Mike, is he is my bishop. I've served under him for 12 years in Indiana as an elder. I have found him to be a genuine and authentic leader of the church who has been able to navigate some very sensitive issues in our state, as well as be a leader around the world dealing with issues and Things facing our United Methodist uh, Church. Our conversation was far ranging. We touched on a lot of things about the state of the church as he sees it right now, what he calls a big tent that's being stretched by some of the challenges in our church. He gave his observations about the global church, especially in places like Eastern Europe and Africa, as well as the state of the church in North America. We talked about the advice he might give to a brand new bishop and to young. Younger clergy who are just starting out. I think you're going to find Bishop Mike to be very hopeful about the about the future of the church, particularly because of two things: the influx of younger clergy, new ideas, fresh approaches, and the influence of devoted laypersons. That has shifted the nature of the church a little bit more towards the laity, and that's been a good thing, according to Bishop Mike. We also talked about two words that Bishop Mike considers key for the future of our church. Two words are nimbleness and partnership. And of course, we talked about what Bishop Mike is really looking forward to most in his retirement. It was a joy to talk with Bishop Mike Coiner. I think you're going to find this conversation very beneficial in your ministry context. Let's make the connection right now. Our guest with us is Bishop Michael Coyner of the Indiana area of the United Methodist Church. Bishop Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be a part of it.
0: Well, I just—it's a thrill to have you on the podcast to share a little bit. You've been my bishop for the last twelve years or so, and uh, you've certainly have had a, a great, uh, a lot of things happening in the, Indiana, in the Indiana area in your time as bishop. And it's well, sometime in the next few months, it's going to be uh, transitioning as you'll be heading into retirement. And I just wanted to just have this opportunity. For us to have a little conversation, and for you to share some things about what you might want to share to to the good people, uh, I'd like to kind of start at the beginning a little bit. Tell tell me just a little bit about your how you found Christ in your life in the first place, and how that led you into ministry. And then we'll go talk about the episcopy in a second.
1: Glad to talk about that. I grew up in Anderson, Indiana. And when I think about that formative time in my life, I think of really three overlapping, interlocking circles. One was my own family. I was very blessed to grow up in a Christian home. At the time, I didn't think much about that, took it for granted, thought everybody did. I've learned subsequently that's not true for everybody. But our family was very much a Christian home and very engaged in church, first Methodist as it was then, first United Methodist now. And by engaged, I mean my my mother was a Sunday school teacher. She was a youth counselor, went to a camp with us. My dad was Sunday school superintendent and then trustees and all that. So uh, it was just Sunday was church, and we always went to church. So I grew up and was confirmed. So that's one one of the circles. But the other circle then was um, the youth group at my church. I was very blessed. We had a really strong youth program. Uh, The church loved and welcomed youth, so we had a gymnasium in the church, you know. And we had uh, all kinds of youth activities, had a a pastor on staff named Bill Matisse, who's now a retired pastor, who was a part of that. And then the third circle would be church camp, which particularly for me was Epworth Forest in the north part of the state. And it was really those three things together, but at Epworth Forest is where I guess I would say my faith came alive. I'd been raised in a church and confirmed, but as a junior high kid at camp, Uh, As many people discover, I I was at church camp and experienced uh, an invitation to make a public commitment to Christ at one of the fireside services, and I did that. And it was a pretty emotional time for me as a junior high kid to, to discover... I think, the the personal nature of that relationship. And then later in senior high, that's also the same church camp site with senior high camp where I began to feel called to ministry at the time. I really tried to kind of ignore it because I had other thoughts from my life, but it kept coming back and coming back. And so so finally the summer before my senior year in high school on a decision night kind of thing, I got up and went forward and said, I'm not sure what this means, but yes, and almost immediately, my home church rallied around me, and they were very great. They didn't say, you have to do this. They said, we want to help you figure out if this is the right thing. That's so, a lesson in and of, in and of, of itself about the, absolutely. how the local church can come, come around people. Yeah, I remember uh, really the Sunday or two after camp, my senior pastor, who I didn't know as well, you know, he was Dr. Fribly, He was way up there. Right. Uh, he did a wonderful job of introducing me. He had me read scripture that day and just say, you know, Mike's exploring where God wants to lead him. And it might be he'll be a pastor someday, might be something else, but we're going to surround him with prayer and love. And they did. They gave me lots of opportunities. So those overlapping circles really came together for me uh, so that by the end of high school, even when I went off to a state college, I was pretty sure I was on a track to go into some kind of formal ministry. And so you did. I did. Yeah. And
0: how did that evolve then? And I'm kind of interested in a little bit how that evolved that you.
1: Um ended
0: up in the episcopacy. How did you get here? How did you get from there?
1: To hear. Well, it certainly wasn't a career path or plan. I, I went to college, went to Purdue University, and majored in what they now call liberal arts college. It was called humanities then. And then I went off to seminary at Duke Divinity School and planned to be a pastor. And I still think of myself as a pastor. Of Came course. back to I served a couple student churches in seminary. Came back to Indiana. I served in places like Peru and South Bend and Fort Wayne and etc. And, et and uh, then at one point in the midst. Of of serving a bunch of churches over a, a period of years, Bishop Hodep called me and asked me to be a superintendent in the Lafayette District, which was interestingly back where college had been with Purdue, so I was back in that home area there. I bet you enjoyed that. I did very much, and my, my grandparents were from that area, and they were deceased by then, but my... Um, my grandfather was a, a banker in a small town, and he okay. everybody knew my grandfather, Jake Coiner. Yeah, little, little bit of, of a legacy in the community. Yeah, yeah and so that was a, when I went around to all these little churches. That was a good name to have, you know. They'd say, "Are you related to, to Jake Coiner, the banker?" Because he'd been one of those guys through the depression and all that, who had been very helpful to people, okay. and just and so it was it was nice. But anyway, after serving on the cabinet for a while, then um, as as these things work in our system our conference, which was the North Conference at the time, endorsed me to be a candidate for bishop. And uh, I was young enough, I was 46, so at the time everybody said, well, this is an honor, and you know, maybe second or third time around you'll really be considered. And so that's... attitude I went in which was uh, I don't have to be a bishop but I'll go explore this opportunity and I wound up getting elected uh, in 1996 the jurisdictional conference was held in Fort Wayne, Indiana so there were a lot of Indiana people there of course and it was a a high moment. Then I was assigned to go serve in the Dakotas for two terms total of eight years then assigned back to Indiana so I'm actually wrapping up 20 years as a bishop which is kind of hard to believe it's been that long. How about
0: that? Tell me about, I'd like to go back just kind of the beginning of that just for a second somewhere in that process of becoming a bishop there must have been a, a realization moment that oh my goodness yes this could be real <laughs> this you know for the, whatever it was for you uh, your heart jumping up or whatever tell me about what was going on kind of in you when you suddenly had that aha moment that this is happening yeah.
1: Well, it was in uh, 1995, we elected delegates to General Conference, and I was elected first to lead the delegation, and then the delegation that year nominated me, and then they brought the nomination back to Annual Conference in, in May of 96, leading up to Jurisdictional Conference that summer. And that's where it really began to hit me, was at, juris- at the Annual Conference meeting in May, when the delegation brought their proposal and everybody applauded and voted yes to that, it suddenly hit me: this this could actually happen. And uh, there were in that particular year there were four bishops retiring, so we had a lot of openings. So my wife and I actually, uh, after annual conference that year, we had planned to take a little vacation. We basically went away together for a week to pray about it and say, are we ready for this? And if this really happens, what do we do? Because we knew it would likely mean moving to a different state that's typical and starting over somewhere. And that's a kind of an awesome thing after 25, 26 years of ministry to say I'm ready to go elsewhere. And, it's, and as it turned out, then we were assigned to the Dakotas, two states I'd never set foot in my life. So mm-hmm. it was quite an adventure to move off and start fresh, really. But you know, we came out of that basically and I went through a jurisdictional conference election process saying I don't have to be a bishop. But I'll I'll see if that happens, I'll see that as God's call through the church, and that's what happened. And so I said yes.
0: In terms of the episcopy, you mentioned that you've had a twenty year tenure now, and you're yes. kind of winding that up here in this uh, later this year of of two thousand sixteen. Uh Tell me about some of the really cool things that happened. Just some of the cool things that happened in that 20 years. He must have had some really high moments, and I'm sure some, some challenging ones as well.
1: Yes, both. Uh, w- one thing about being a bishop is you get to travel along around a lot, both in the area, sir, but also around the world, and get to see the church at work. The negative side of that is you also see what we call, as bishops, we call it the underbelly of the church. You see sometimes the worst parts of the church because you deal with the problem cases, but the the better part is uh, to travel around and, and get to see all the things that are happening in ministry and mission all over the world. So I've been in places like the philippines and and uh, sierra leone and and uh, uh, lithuania and places like that where uh, the church is is new and alive and vital in brazil and places like that so it's it's really a great opportunity and about anywhere i, to back I go to that, but please. i just want
0: to touch on that a little bit about mm-hmm. how the, to kind of compare the church in those vibrant parts of the world and how you may compare it to some of our uh, other experiences here in north america but please continue
1: but it's also true that around the Dakotas and around Indiana, typically, I, I really enjoy preaching and being in local churches. I typically get invited to special events, so I do get a chance to see the church at its best. It'll be a groundbreaking for a new building, or this past Sunday I was dedicating a new sanctuary for the Mount Pleasant Church in Terre Haute, and so I, I get invited in for a lot of uh, great celebrations and get to see the church kind of at its best in many ways, During the week, I oftentimes, in meetings, am dealing with personnel issues and problems to deal with. So it's both and. But I really get to see the church... what one of my colleagues calls it, we get to see the big church. I mean, everybody gets to see their own local church, which is wonderful, but you get to see the bigger picture in the role of bishop because you get to travel around, and see lots of things going on, and there's so many good things happening. It's really
0: what do you see in the big fun. picture? What's your kind of your overall vision now of that big picture?
1: Well, I think there's a, a first of all in the southern hemisphere and in Eastern Europe and in Africa. Clearly, uh, there's a there's just a whole great awakening or revival. I'm not sure what you call it going on. I mean, the church is exploding in many of those areas, both our, our denomination and many others. And some of those places where the church was repressed, like Eastern Europe, it's just profound to see how people survive the faith during the years of Soviet occupation and things like that. And it's almost like seeing the New Testament come alive, these little churches popping up in the middle of nowhere and uh, vibrancy. I mean, I was visiting a, a new Methodist congregation, United Methodist congregation in Mozambique a few years ago. They are meeting under a Tree Hmm. with with a tarp, but five hundred people there. Five
0: hundred people under a tree.
1: Yeah, they had a tarp and uh, pretty
0: big tree, I assume.
1: Well, pretty good sized tree, and then they had a tarp and things, and and uh, the the denomination had given them money to to build a building, but instead they used it to drill a well so they could provide good drinking water to the whole village. Well, of course, the village responded to say, well, you know, who are you people? Why do you care that we all get good water? And they and their theme was we, we provide water, but then we'll teach you about Jesus as the living water. And they were just growing dramatically, uh, that missionary spirit. So I see a lot of that. But I see that in the U.S. too. Uh, we talk a lot about plateauing and decline, and it's true. But I I also see that alongside that, a lot of new things are are emerging. A lot of younger people are catching the vision of the church being outwardly focused and mission focused. And, uh, yeah, we have churches that are old and dying. We do. Uh, We have a lot of aging population, and we do. But there's a lot of life, too. There's just a lot of life everywhere you go. And and it's a surprise. Last week we were talking in Cabinet about McNatt, Indiana, where the church was down to five or six people ten years ago. And uh, the part-time local pastor there recently reported they had 146 people on Easter, You know, which from 5 or 6 to 146 in 15 years is is that's phenomenal. Like whatever, a 5,000% increase yeah, or something? Yeah, no one's going to write a big article in a national paper about that, but that's just phenomenal. Yeah. And there's, there's those good stories are all around. So one thing about traveling around among churches, as I do, I get to see a lot of that. A lot of that good news. Well,
0: that's cool. That's cool. They have is. good news that's out there. And part of what we're about here on this podcast mm-hmm. is to share the good news stories, not to avoid some of the challenging things that we have, but to uh, sure. that we have good news to share. We do. We do. But I, I would be interested, though, in some of the things that you think are some really challenges to the church right now. What are some things that really threaten the United Methodist Church?
1: Well, the obvious one that everybody talks about is our our, our split. At least an attitude over certain social issues. Sexuality is certainly one of them, and those are true. And we will do battle of those. I actually see it a little differently. I, I understand that happens, but I think I think the biggest difference I see among churches is whether we are focused upon ourselves, or mm. are focused outside of ourselves, and it's a it's a huge difference between whether we see the church as an institution to take care of us. Or we see the church as a mission to be engaged in in caring and reaching out to others. And obviously it's both and. I mean, there's times we all come to church and we need the church's love and care and compassion. But if we get stuck there... That's where I think a lot of churches struggle. We have one church in this conference, for example. It's over in West Lafayette. Uh, When new people join the church, they give them aprons, which say, I'm here to serve. And they talk about, you know, you may come to church originally with a bib to be fed, (laughs) but now it's time as you're joining to become a servant and serve others. And I think that's the... That's the dichotomy we're into. I like that one.
0: That's a new one. I've heard some other analogies about, you know, transitioning, you know, the baseball diamond mm. or the moving from the living room to the kitchen and so on. Right. But that's a new one. I really
1: like yeah, that. Yeah, we, we're here for bibs or for aprons is an interesting way to put it. They do in their church. Yeah. And I do think that's in the church. Now, a part of that, which is not the whole picture, but a part of that is our differences over issues and how we view Scripture. And I think what we've come to as United Methodists is this understanding that, Uh, Wow, there's people of good faith who read the same Bible but who disagree on some of these issues. And it's not like...
0: And how can we get along in that process? And how
1: can we get along? Yeah, How can we live together? And it's not like, uh, you know, if, if you're a liberal, you have to assume all conservatives are people who are just Bible thumpers. They don't care about people. And if you're a conservative, you don't have to assume all liberals. They don't care about the Bible. I think we have to grow a respect that says people of good faith disagree on some issues so as you said how do you get along in the midst of that do you allow how much freedom do you allow yeah versus how much do you hold each other accountable. seems to me that's, that's pretty, our struggle.
0: pretty profoundly Christian and Wesleyan, for that matter, is how how do we yeah.
1: function together. And we've been a pretty big tent as United Methodists. We've been a mainline denomination with a big tent where we've allowed a lot of diversity. Right now, it almost feels like the tent's being stretched pretty tight, and how, okay. f- how far can it go? And that's the struggle we face, as, as do many other denominations, is how far can it stretch? And being a middle child, I tend to want to try to hold people together okay. and yeah. find compromises, but they're not always easy to find.
0: You're the you're the uh, negotiator, I
1: guess. I am, yeah. Okay, I'm, I was a middle child between two sisters, and I sort of learned to negotiate in my family, I guess.
0: Well, speaking of, of negotiating, I know that uh, one of the big things that happened in the state of Indiana during your time as bishop was the bringing together of two conferences.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And uh, maybe you could say just a word about motivations for that how that came about and how it's worked out it's been a few years since that was implemented mm-hmm. yes. i just like your take on that whole process because some people who listen to this may that is this is my is issue not only in indiana it happens around the united states at least of, it does of the coming yeah. together conferences but i'm interested in your take on how that is a all evolved mm-hmm. came
1: about well in 2004 when i was assigned to come home to indiana to serve as bishop the committee that makes those assignments is called the Committee on Episcopacy. It's a lay and a clergy member from each of the conferences of the region, the north central region jurisdiction. And when that committee assigned me to come home to Indiana, they said to me, uh, we are sending you to Indiana because the Indiana conferences in Indiana want to consider merging or becoming one conference, and they need someone that is from Indiana who knows them, has some trust, because they want to become one. And I laughed and said, no, they don't. I grew up in Indiana, north and south, don't get along that well. I don't think they're serious about it. I said, "No, they're very serious about it." So I came to Indiana and I found there was some seriousness. We had a committee that was already working on it. Bishop White, my predecessor, had started. It's called the merger task force. But when I met with them, they would each come in the room and they'd line up on each side of the table. The North people on <laughs> one side, the South on the other. They kind of look at each other like, "Who are you people?"
0: They weren't wearing blue and gray, were they? Not really? quite, no, but almost.
1: So I said, after meeting with them a few times, I said. I don't think we're ready to get married. We haven't dated yet. Why don't we spend time getting acquainted as the two conferences? So we set up some processes to have the cabinets meet together occasionally and the lay leadership and all that. And... uh, the committee, the merger task force so called, we agreed it was time to drop the word merger. Okay. And start to ask the question, you know, what what would God want us to be in Indiana if we could start with a blank sheet of paper? So out of that came the term imagine Indiana. Let's imagine what God's calling us to do. And, and it seemed like the minute we stopped talking merger and we started talking about let's imagine a new future, then the t- conversation changed a lot. Uh, we had a series of votes over three years, really of each of the separate conferences voting. The first year was simply, do you want us to keep going and working on this? If not, don't waste our time. And the conferences both said, well, yeah, keep working on it. Then the next year we came back with kind of the... The basic bare bones outline of what it might look like, and said, "What do you think?" And again, they both said, "Yeah, I'll keep working on it." And by the third year, we actually came back with a plan. And in between, we did listing sessions all around the state. I, I went to all 18 districts that we had at the time three times, I think, each and with a team to say, "Here's what we're thinking. What do you think?" And had a lot of engagement. A lot of people were involved in it, which was, I think, a secret. There
0: but there was some passion in those meetings. That oh, there some
1: was. Involved? Some some people got real upset. They they got upset about things like, will, will my pension plan change and, you know, right. how much apportionments are you going to charge each church and whatnot. But also a lot of good dreams came out, and I think because we had so many people involved – when the final vote was taken in 2008, it passed both conferences by over 75% each. My only worry in that was that one might vote yes and one vote no, and then we'd be stuck with what do we do now. But it was, it was passed very well. And then we had a uniting conference to work on a few more details and launched really the new conference in 2010. So we're still in our first six years, five and a half years, as a new conference.
0: How would you evaluate how it's gone in those six years?
1: i think I think overall well we we had an outside group uh, led by a lay person who does this for a living. He evaluates businesses for a living. We had him do an evaluation in twenty thirteen <laughs> and he came back with a report. It was called, I forget the interim report it was called, but he did a lot of evaluation. He named the things that were doing well. One was we really did save money. We streamlined a lot of cost and and cut back a lot of staff. We streamlined a lot of duplication, and that was a good thing. Uh, He found that being able to work as one and have one voice in Indiana as opposed to the two conferences speaking sometimes differently was helpful. He found that uh, most people, particularly, particularly clergy, Seemed to know what we were doing and be affirming. A lot of laity, it didn't seem to impact them. You know, I still have my local church, my pastor. Uh, The place he found we were still weak was getting to know each other better, and that just takes time. It takes like a whole generation. Mm -hmm. And what I find now is the young clergy who've come along and been ordained in the new Indiana Conference. They don't have those old issues, the old north-south issues. They still come up once in a while, but it's, it's gone overall well. Uh, I think the streamlining has really helped us. Both conferences were struggling financially quite a bit, and our, even our pension and health care programs were struggling. But being a larger pool together has helped. It's helped us with uh, matching pastors and churches. We've had a bigger pool to deal with. But we get into geography. You know, some people okay. up in the north part of the state say, well, I don't want to go to Evansville. And people in the south part say, I don't want to go up to the Calumet region. Right. So we deal with still a lot of regionalism. But overall, I but think on, it's on been balance, a good thing. Uh, On balance, are you pleased? I am. Yes, okay. I'm very pleased on balance. Yeah.
0: Well, that, that's wonderful because I think that – <laughs> Everything that we do administratively in the church and everything we do in terms of how we, uh, uh, whether it's spiritual formation or preaching or teaching or Mm -hmm. everything we have to do has to focus on what what our individual church mission and what our overall mission is. And we have said that our mission as a church is the making of disciples of Jesus
1: Christ for the transformation of the world. Mm
0: -hmm. My question to you, Bishop, is how are we doing on that?
1: Well, interesting. We're doing fairly well, and the, we also struggle. I just this morning actually asked for a report from our staff. I got to wondering um, in my 12 years here, which is really only 11 years of reports because of the twelfth right. years in process. Um, the question I raised was, how many professions of faith, which is new people brought to Christ that we had in Indiana? And that doesn't count transfers in or out or transfers one church to the other. And the answer, it was fascinating to me, uh, over the 11-year period, it turned out to be 55,000. Hmm. New people brought to Christ while I've been bishop. Now, that's not that I've done it, but, I mean, that's just where I presided over. And I was, I was a little surprised the number was that high, frankly, because we have about 200,000 members. Yeah. We, uh, on net, are declining a little each year, but what we're having is it's, we're dealing with the death rate. It's not that people are leaving us to transfer to other denominations. It's rather that we're an aging church, and it's hard for us to bring in enough new disciples to make up for mm-hmm. our older faithful members who are passing on. Sometimes that's the demographics of communities as it well. Is. We have a lot of churches and communities where there's just not many people left anymore.
0: Of course, and then, but we also have the issue that almost in any community, there's a lot of people not going to anybody's church.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. So
0: we have we certainly have a responsibility
1: in that. Yeah, we don't have what I'd call the home court advantage we had when I started ministry. When I started ministry, the church was very respected. You know, church night on Wednesday night was a common thing in most communities. They wouldn't schedule school or community activities, and Sunday mornings were reserved for church activities they wouldn't have soccer practice on sunday morning well now that's all changed and the
0: era of the church culture is long gone it is gone
1: yeah and i think our churches haven't always adjusted to that we've just sort of blamed everybody rather than realizing it's a Mm -hmm. it's an unchurched culture that we have to treat like a mission field yeah instead of complaining well they ought to they ought to not have soccer on Sunday morning. You spoke about mission field and how we need to see our own local communities
0: with mission fields. Of course, Wesley said the world is my parish. Yes. And you mentioned a minute, a few minutes ago, about how you saw real, you know, really uh, some excitement in the church in places like Europe mm-hmm. and in Africa. And uh, but it's kind of compare and contrast that to what we have here in North America. And I'm looking for signs of hope, but mm-hmm. also signs of how we can kind of define issues.
1: Well, interestingly, I recently had a conversation with uh, folks at the Lilly Endowment here in town who've been okay. very supportive of us and given us grants to do things for our clergy and whatnot. But what we were talking about that particular day, um, some of their leaders said to me, they think there's hope because our United Methodist Church in Indiana has finally being realistic about where we stand that we'd lived in kind of a, a dream world up till now just assuming we could keep doing things like we used to do and they they were saying to me that's been that's as they see it part of what I, they, i've led them to do is to face reality as opposed to live in the past and they see that as hopeful we have to we have to deal with the brutal facts sometimes first to start making a difference.
0: Deal with the brutal facts and still move forward in faith.
1: Exactly. And I I think there's some truth to that. I think we were in a little bit of a denial of... um decline and things like that we just we're still the biggest denomination in the state so we right. just we brag a lot about being big and tough and strong but then we have to realize wow we we've lost a lot of momentum in a lot of places it's hard to get back mm-hmm. so maybe dealing with that reality will help us have more hope for the future
0: well, speaking of realities that we as a church have to deal with both here in Indiana and around the world, General Conference is coming up here before yep, too next long. Month. We're talking in April of 2016, and next month in May is General Conference. And that impacts a lot of clergy who uh, will be listening to this podcast. Um, what's your take on some of the issues that are before General Conference, in particular how they will impact the local
1: church? Mm-hmm. Well, General Conference is an odd animal, and particularly as a bishop, it's very odd. We sit on the stage together as bishops, don't have a lot to do. We take turns presiding over sessions, and a few of us are picked to to preach or whatever. But we don't have voice or vote at General Conference, so we sit on the stage and watch it happen. And uh, sometimes it's discouraging because you can see the whole congregation there and think, wow, um, they're not listening to each other. They're not making much progress. The last General Conference in Tampa was particularly frustrating because the, the General Conference passed a lot of changes for the church, which, many of which I thought were pretty good. Structural restructuring and all that. And then the... Judicial Council, which is our Supreme Court, ruled them all unconstitutional. And the last night of general conference, people were sitting around saying, why did we waste two weeks here? Now, they did some good things that weren't really ruled out of order, but there was that sense. So I don't know what the new one will be here in 2016. My guess is there won't be huge changes because uh, the structure itself doesn't lend itself to a lot of change. You know, it's a big group. Uh, They've reduced the number of delegates from 1,000 to 850, but that's still a huge group of people. It's more and more global. There'll be translations into, I think, seven languages as the things move along. So you have a lot of differences of culture and language to try to understand each other. So it's unlikely to see that as a leadership team, (laughs) 850 people. Uh, It's really set up to be a legislative committee and like a large congress to vote and so they go through legislative groups and small groups and petitions and eventually they come back to the to the full plenary and it's a slow process. So I think if people look to general congress to really lead change it's not the place it'll happen.
0: Well, I guess that's part of the uh, part of what I think is a challenge before the whole United Methodist Church. <laughs> yes. We are a big 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 organization. Mm-hmm. Which traditionally has moved slow, and yet we are in a fast-moving world. Exactly. And there's something incongruent with that, and we're not keeping up all the time. And therefore, that's part of the reason, at least from my perspective, that we have some challenges, particularly Mm in North America.
1: Uh, about growth and vitality. We do, and and, uh, we're not nimble, would be one way to put it. Yeah. Uh, We also have changing demographics as a church, so this time a larger and larger percentage of the delegates are from outside the U.S. It's, I think, about 43% are from outside the U.S. Uh, They tend to be, not all of them, but they tend to be a little more conservative. Uh, a little more concerned with not changing things. They don't, many of the Africans who come particularly, say to me, we don't want to come here." Americans argue about their sexual cultures. We want to talk about the gospel. We want to talk about mission education, which I affirm. Kind of
0: hard to argue with that. Hard to argue say, with that.
1: <laughs> but it makes it hard for U.S. churches to deal with some of the issues yeah, we have to deal with. You have to deal with some of the issues. So we're not very nimble. Uh, I, I really think General Conference follows the church. I think the local churches and local missions are really where we're on the cutting edge more often, and where changes happen and we adapt to communities. And then the General Conference comes along and they kind of codify that and put it into the rule book for us, a book of discipline. But it's hard to expect the General Conference to really be very creative and to lead.
0: Well, having identified this as one issue we have mm-hmm. is generally, generally as a church that uh, I doubt if we're going to solve that. Or you and I here today, and maybe General Conference won't uh, solve that, but I am looking for signs of hope. What do you see as signs of hope in the United Methodist
1: Church? Well, what I mentioned earlier is how much uh, growth there is outside of the U.S. and I think a a genuine sense of partnership. The the Board of Global Ministries, for example, their new slogan is missions from everywhere to everywhere. And so I think the more we become less U.S. centric and seeing ourselves as the rescuer of the world, Mm. and the more we see ourselves in partnership with the world, I think there's a lot of hope there, that we can learn from other places in the world. We're not just the ones who... And
0: perhaps some that. of those third world countries could rescue some of those first world uh, hey, people. Exactly,
1: but, uh, yeah. Uh, I know the Missouri conference, for example, some years ago, they, they invited over the leaders of the Mozambique conference in Africa and said to them, come teach us how to do evangelism because we're not doing very well. Yeah, and I think same. we need to do more of those kinds of partners. So that's one thing. I think another thing that's uh, really a sign of hope is the way we are able to tackle some big issues. One of them, I would say, is malaria through nothing but nets and now imagine no malaria we have really reduced the number of children in africa and other places dying of malaria and we've done that in partnership with other health organizations around the world but if you stop and look at uh, effectiveness in ministry to say well we've reduced the number of children die from malaria that's a pretty cool result and i so i think we've learned how to do some things around the world in partnership with other groups the gates foundation was involved in that for example
0: i think this whole idea of partnerships whether it's with other geno- other uh, groups within our denomination, mm-hmm. even with other denominations, and even with things like the Gates Foundation, uh, and, uh, business entities, yes, right. health entities, governmental entities, uh, just from my uh, approach, I think that's could be a real way of moving forward.
1: I do yeah, too. I do too. And alongside that, third one I'd name would be. Um uh, younger clergy, we've we've really reached a point of reaching a lot of younger clergy in Indiana, but it's happening elsewhere. And you and I are old enough to see the differences there. They bring a different attitude. They're tech savvy. Uh, they're not quite as career focused as uh, they're more mission focused. And I think there's a lot of a lot of hope that uh, we you know we. When I came back to Indiana in 2004, one thing I was told, and statistics proved it, we didn't have very many younger clergy under 40. And now we have a lot. In fact, this year at conference, we've got a lot of babies to baptize of clergy families because we have a lot of younger clergy. And that's been good for the church. I think the, I think the way to reach younger generations is not simply about the age of the pastor, but it doesn't hurt to have pastors in their 20s and 30s. They can speak to people more, clear, more clearly of that age than I can at my age.
0: Absolutely. Well, as we we begin to, um, as we have some of these transitions happening in the United Methodist Church. I would, so you certainly have one for you that you're mm-hmm. going to be retiring before too long, and that means that you've had 20 years of experience as a bishop and your whole ministry experience that you have. Yeah, 44 uh, altogether. 44. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to count them with you, but uh, <laughs> but you've had a wealth of experience in every, just about every level of the church of, of the church. Mm-hmm. First of all, what kind, kind of put yourself back when you first began as a bishop, some of those, you know, butterflies of stomach, whatever you had. Maybe someone spoke to you then, another bishop, but I'm thinking about what kind of things might you say to a new bishop? I'm not even particularly thinking about who may come here to Indiana. Right. But what kind of things would you say to a, a brand new bishop? These are some things that are scary to look out for. These are some things that just fill your heart with joy.
1: Well, one of the things I was told by a veteran bishop when I came on, well, one was humorous, but one was helpful. He said to me, you'll find there's a lot of chicken and green beans in the world. And I've found that in a lot of church (laughs) church (laughs) suppers. But he said to me, uh, just remember, it's never as bad as they say it is, and it's never as good as they say it is. And, And so he was offering a advice to be a little more even keeled as you deal with problems and possibilities and I think that's true Uh, leaders need to be non-anxious as much as they can be and I'd say to a new bishop whether they're in Indiana or elsewhere um, don't overreact to every little fad that comes along because things are you know the church is very solid the church is going to be around forever I believe and uh, there's a lot of good in the church so don't panic so much that'd be one thing I'd say. The other I'd say is listen listen to a lot of lay people i mean the clergy i want to hear what they say but a lot of lay people they know more about the church what it really is we we pastors come and go and we move around but i have found the wisdom of the laity is uh, something i've tried to listen to because there's just a lot of folks who they understand the real world and they also understand the church and they they live in both worlds Of course, Wesleyanism is founded on involved laity. Very much so. Yes, that's in our heritage, our DNA, and that's who we are. When we become too clerical, too clergy-focused, I think we lose some of that.
0: And kind of taking this whole theme and and moving on with a little bit... (laughs) Let's say you're talking, and I know you do this, you're talking to some of these younger clergy that you've talked to who are just starting out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What kind of words of advice or uh, encouragement do you give to those folks who maybe well, one started that like,
1: 40-year yeah, process? One thing I like to do is tell them what it was like when I started because they start to think of me as a dinosaur, and I talk about what limited technology we had. You know, We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers and all that. And the more I tell those stories, they look at me like I'm really a dinosaur. But then I say to them, that's how much ministry's changed during my years. It's going to change that much or more during your years. You've got to really keep up. You've got to learn what's going on in the world. You've got to keep up with technology, keep up with the trends. And uh, I think they hear that, but it's uh, it's a challenge. Um, it's Being a pastor today is far more difficult than when I was a new pastor. You know, I think my first church, really they expected me to pretty much read them a sermon. We didn't do much other than read a manuscript, uh, pray with those who are ill, visit around the homes, and maybe you do a Bible study. There wasn't much. Now it's everything from putting together PowerPoints to managing an organization to really understanding finances and leadership. It's just very much more complex. And as, as we talked about earlier, back then when I started ministry, it was a home court advantage. It was a churched world. Right. It, people kind of expected to be church members, and now it's a, it's a challenge. So I, I say to young clergy, you really have to be as much as you can on the cutting edge of all that, because you're the ones that are going to lead the church into the future well that's uh that's
0: good some good thoughts there and good advice i think for the younger clergy but i want you to have the opportunity bishop corner just to share anything you'd like to share to anyone who might be hearing this, this is a podcast that's targeted towards United Methodist leaders and clergy. Mm-hmm. And as you make some transitions in your life and you, you've had this, you've mentioned you kind of have this, what I might call a 20,000-foot view of the church, but you've also been involved in the trenches. I know that about right. you. Right. What do you want to say to, uh, to the good people who may be listening to this who love the United Methodist Church and love Jesus and do believe in the mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world?
1: Well, the big thing I'd say is I'm still very, very hopeful about the church. There's days I'm not optimistic, but I'm always hopeful because I think our hope is in Christ and not in our own abilities. But I'm very hopeful. I see so many uh, good signs in the life of the church. I, I really—that's the only thing I've said to young clergy—is I'm jealous of you because you're going to have a wonderful thirty or forty years ahead of you, and I'm going to be retiring and still going to do something in ministry. I'm not sure what, but I'm jealous. You're going to have—you're going to be leading the church through some great times. they are going to be challenging times, but I think that's when the church is at its best. There's a lot of uh, historical... Uh, proof i think that when the church is comfortable we don't do well mm. but when we're under duress even under persecution christians seem to step up so i think these next 20 30 years are going to be challenging years for the church but i think they're going to be good years i think we're going to sort out you know the necessity of being really committed to christ and our mission and a lot of things that we have called church we're going to lay aside they're not important well, I think that's a
0: good word for us to begin to wind this, our conversation down. Is one more thing. What are you really looking forward to in retirement? What is you just jazzed about more than anything else that you're going to look forward to getting after once you actually retire?
1: Well, I don't want to be trite, but it's my grandchildren. Okay. Uh, we're blessed to have some wonderful grandchildren. And uh, my schedule limits how often I can be with them. So really looking forward to that. My wife is already sort of retired from teaching and does lots of volunteer work, but as we've talked about our schedule, we've said, well, we're going to have more time to visit grandkids. That's certainly one thing. I also uh, look forward to uh, schedules where I can do more reading than I've had time to do at times and and travel by choice. A lot of my travel has not been by choice. It's been by assignment. So we're not going to just run out and travel around the world, but I think we've we've talked about where some places we might like to go for our own uh, uh We don't have a long list that way, but there's certain things, and and so we'll do some of that. I'm sure. The other thing I'm look forward to is is friendships. I've, I've I've found a lot of good friendships in ministry, and being back in Indiana's enhanced that. So, uh, you know, just to have a chance to go out to dinner with friends, I don't get a lot of that now because I'm always going to meetings. It seems or some kind of mission work. So uh, we'll look forward to all that. But um, we're also kind of vague about that. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, and we're got okay. Got some open ends, huh? some open ends. Which you and, haven't had a whole lot of I would assume. No, most of my life's been pretty well structured so yeah, cool. uh, I think we're going to be okay with that uh, it's, it, probably my wife's a little more nervous about that and I have to promise her I'm not going to mess up her schedule too much <laughs> and I won't reorganize the kitchen or something like that. I've been told that's off limits. Well,
0: so. I'm sure you'll have a whole new set of challenges when I'm sure.
1: that this I'm sure, I'm sure.
0: Well, I just want to say to you it's been a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast today and certainly a pleasure to have to uh, serve under you in, in the thank United Methodist Church thank in Indiana and, and we I just want to say thank you for your service to the church here in Indiana, Dakotas and other places that you've been throughout the world and uh, thank you for your for your oh, service. Thank
1: you very much. It's been a real privilege. That would be one thing I would say to any new bishop or any new clergy is I think ministry is really a privilege. It's not, it's not something to make a career out of in the sense of I, I, the church owes me this but it's been a privilege and I've really enjoyed it.
2: The United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller.
0: Thank you again to Bishop Mike Corner for opening up so much to me in this interview. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure that you gleaned some helpful insights about the church that we all love from Bishop Mike. Two key things jumped out at me, nimbleness, how we respond to a changing world, and how our church just be kind of like a battleship movie. We need to to be more more like a speedboat that responds quickly. To needs we have in our communities and in the world. And the other other word that came out to me was partnerships. Are we going to work together with other churches, other denominations, other entities, be they government or business or uh, education entities, all of that to advance the mission? Two key words, nimbleness, partnership. Bishop Coiner is also the author of five books, numerous articles, and will continue to be a resource in the church, even in retirement. You can find out a lot more about Bishop Mike Coyner by going to our show notes at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. A regular feature of the United Methodist podcast will be our moment or two devoted to John Wesley or Charles Wesley or some aspect of Methodist history or theology. And today we have with us Wesleyan scholar, Reverend Andrew. Kinsey from Grace United Methodist Church in Franklin, Indiana.
2: Strengthening the connection.
3: The other day I was looking at an old Cokesbury hymnal, and in that hymnal was an order of service. At the end of that service, there was the invitation to Christian discipleship. And I thought to myself, uh, how we need to recapture that whole thrust of giving invitations at some point in the service of worship. Uh, Many people call these altar calls, though I think uh, what John Wesley had in mind was something more, uh, something more in-depth, And here I think as pastors, as lay people, there are wonderful opportunities throughout a uh, worship service to give invitations to Christian discipleship, whether it's at the beginning of Holy Communion, whether it's at the beginning of a baptism, or whether it is following a sermon, inviting people into this uh, grace-filled life with God. Uh, Giving that invitation, uh, it needs to be uh, a part of what we do together As uh, as Christians, and I know Wesley would phrase it something like this: He wouldn't give an altar call per se, but he would tell people, you know, if you're really serious about this Christian life, come back and talk to me. Come back a week from now and let's, uh, let's get together. Let's be in conversation. And then, then we'll find a way to get you involved in a small group. Now, that was his way of uh, inviting people into this uh, life of Christian faith. But I wonder what ways would be helpful today uh, to do that.
0: Good people, it's time to bring this episode number 003 of the United Methodist Podcast to a close. Thanks again so much to Bishop Mike Koiner from the Indiana area of the United Methodist Church for sharing so much, and to Dr. Andy Kinsey, who brought us the Methodist Moment. I do want to share with you that this podcast is brought to you by the new book, Meet the Good People, Wesley's Seven Ways to Share Faith. The author is Rev. Dr. Roger Ross from Springfield, Illinois. It's a great book. It has a lot of practical applications of taking Wesleyan theology and thinking and strategy and implementing it into the 21st century ministry context that we live in. You can win an autographed copy, hard copy of the book, by going to UnitedMethodistPodcast.com. We're also uh, sponsored by and supportive of Mission Guatemala. Mission Guatemala is an advanced special mission of the church, but moreover, this mission has an incredibly miraculous story of a United Methodist mission that has just emerged in the last few years. You need to hear that story about Reverend Tom Heaton and the folks at Mission Guatemala. You can go to missionguatemala.com to learn all, all about it, and you can certainly make that connection at our website. But most of all today, I really want to thank you folks for checking out the United Methodist podcast. The mission of the United Methodist podcast is strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary, the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. You can be supportive of the United Methodist podcast by telling others about it. Go to your network of friends and colleagues and just send them an email or, or a Facebook post about the United Methodist podcast and invite them to to connect with us. Uh, you can go to our uh, our community at facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast, and you can find us there. Or you can really, it really would be helpful if you go to iTunes. Search for us on iTunes under United Methodist Podcast. And if you will, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. And please write a one or two-sentence review. That really helps others find us who are searching on the net course you can make all these connections to the united methodist podcast at our home base our website united methodist podcast.com that's where you can get on board the united methodist podcast connect newsletter where we talk about some of our guests we have upcoming in on the podcast and of course there's an archive of all the past episodes as well it's there we also have a free gift for you there that you can check that out as well on the website it has been a privilege to be with you today and for letting us have some time in your earbuds today. You are the good people of the, United, of the connection of the United Methodist Church, and we serve together. Until next time, this is Dr. Brad Miller encouraging you to do all the good you can.
2: Thank you for listening to the United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the United Methodist Podcast community. Visit us on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect with other members at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.